Tonight I'd like to talk about three great Buddhist masters known not only for their wisdom but especially for their deep kindness and compassion. I want to begin with a probably not so well-known citation by Karl Marx, which I like. The happiest person is the one who has rendered happy the greatest number of people. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's interesting that he said that. I'll talk about three of the most influential masters of Buddhist teachings on great compassion and bodhicitta. It's Asanga, Shantideva and Atisha. And I'll tell a few stories from their lives and look at some of their teachings. I've started to notice here in the West that we hear about the Buddha, maybe perhaps two or three of his disciples, and then we hear of Munindraji and Sayadaw Pandita and the Dalai Lama and there are two and a half thousand years between them and the Buddha gap in terms of our, our awareness of, of something happened there the countless amazing yogis, yoginis, siddhas and masters people who have not only kept the teaching and uh, practice lineages alive but very often have contributed their own genius and their whole life to revive the Dharma to keep it fresh, relevant for new generations and also for different new cultures in some of the Asian traditions, a vital part of what is handed down through the centuries are legends and stories of such practitioners and such people. <coughs> That's done as a way of engendering faith and inspiration in the following generation of practitioners. And I'll try to do the same in a small way. And I feel it's important for us in this culture to understand that these stories are legends, they're myths and they're archetypal biographies which are meant to convey Dharma values actually in a way that's different from passing on knowledge. They're so supposed to inspire people on their way. Also, I want to make a point that hearing of this master's practice, we could easily measure ourselves against them, compare our practice with theirs, and feel discouraged, not good enough. So, that's clearly missing the point. Please, if you're ever inclined to do so, you know, don't. You may or may not be touched by these teachings, by these stories. There is a bit of levitation and clairvoyance and struggles with demons that's happening here and there. And with this, please remember, I'm not trying to make you believe that these things are possible, nor that they are impossible. <laughs> what touches me is the unconditional enthusiastic effort and surrender these beings have brought to their studies, to their practice and to their way of teaching. Because also for me these deep, wise and precious Buddhist teachings that we receive even today they don't arise out of some some vacuum. Rather, they are at our disposition today because countless men and women throughout the ages have practiced them, have realized them, and passed them on. That's the meaning of lineage. That's the meaning of dharma lineage or practice lineage. 
And for this, I personally feel tremendous respect and gratitude rather than taking it for granted. So I'll talk about Asanga, Shantideva and Atisha. There's three uh, pictures of them, but I have to admit they're not live shots of them. So uh, we lost the photos of them. <laughs> All three were great scholars and deep, deep wells of inexhaustible knowledge and deep wisdom. And at the same time, it was them who placed the teachings and practices of kindness, of compassion, and of bodhicitta into the very center of spiritual life. And in this, they were the most decisive influences for the development of the Mahayana tradition within Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. Mahayana originally refers to the traditions which place great emphasis on the development of an altruistic inner attitude or motivation. This motivation is the resolve or determination to reach the highest possible realization in order to be of most help, most support to all beings on their way to liberation. <coughs> and this determination is called the attitude or motivation of bodhicitta. It's an inner attitude of boundless compassion. So one of the early great masters of the Mahayana tradition in India is Asanga. He was born, was living in the 4th century, so perhaps around 700 years after the Buddha. He was born as the son of a Brahmin woman. A woman who was very concerned about the degeneration of Buddhism in her times. It already happened then, it seems. And Therefore, she inspired her son to become a monk. She thought, my son must do something to change that. So even as a young, very young monk, Asanka was very brilliant, great as a scholar. It is said that he would memorize a hundred thousand verses every year. It's a lot. <laughs> Says that he had no problem understanding the deep meaning of texts. And after many years of study, he felt he needed to go into retreat. So he went into the mountains, the Himalayas, into a cave for retreat. And his aim was to establish a direct connection with Maitreya, the future Buddha of infinite, unconditional love and kindness. Maitreya or Metiya in Pali. So up there in a cave, he practiced for three years, but he didn't attain in three years, okay? He didn't attain to any of the meditation experiences he had set out to attain, which was to have this, this direct connection with Maitreya Buddha. This caused him a lot of disappointment and he left the cave. I guess we don't really like to hear this kind of thing so much. At least I don't. You know, here's this monk, brilliant, full of renunciation and devotion and zeal. After five years of study and three years of retreat, no satisfactory result. It's a little shocking and disappointing. Sometimes I think it's maybe a relief <laughs> if he didn't make it. We ourselves, we give up so much to come to sit for one or two weeks or longer retreats. Here's this monk working on it for years and he doesn't get the results. The story of Asanka's retreat really makes a point on just how much patience, perseverance and devotion is needed here. And this is just the beginning. Once he had left his cave, he saw a bird's nest on a rock cliff. And he saw that the bird had flown in and out so long and consistently that the groove had started to appear in the rock cliff, carved out by the bird's wings that touched the rock when it flew by. So Asanga was so impressed with the patient perseverance of the bird and re-inspired really to go back to the cave. 
for three more years. <laughs> but again, the hoped-for connection with the Buddha Maitreya, with enlightened loving kindness, so to speak, didn't happen. Disheartened, he left the cave again. And this time, he saw a huge rock that had disintegrated over the centuries because of single but continually falling drops of water. And he realized more perseverance, more moment-to-moment <laughs> perseverance was needed. Back he went again for three more years. After nine years, he hadn't reached his goal either. Having left the cave, he saw a man who endeavored to make a needle out of a big chunk of iron by rubbing it with the silk cloth. It's an Indian story, remember? He thought, what this guy can do just to get a worldly object, I can do for the sake of love and kindness. And he gave it the last go, three more years. Sometimes we have similar problems, even though not after so long, maybe. Maybe meditation doesn't work the way we want it. Or we lose heart. We stop sometimes even making the right effort, or we think of giving up. I need a break. You know, maybe I should pack. Sometimes, of course, we do need to create some breathing space. But eventually we need to face even a discouragement or hopelessness if we want to see the light at the end of the tunnel and Asanka did and yet nothing happened no Maitreya Buddha after 12 years he left the mountain for good on his way down from the, the mountains to the villages he came across a dying dog really in bad shape he was already half eaten up by maggots whimpering poor dog Asanka realized that the dog would die if he didn't get rid of the maggots but then he saw that the maggots would die without the dog's flesh so he was so moved that he he cut a piece of flesh out of his body to uh, put the maggots on but then he saw he would kill them when he would pick them out with his fingers so he realized he needed to pick them out with his tongue it's a Tibetan story okay (laughs) (laughs) full of compassion but also feeling the repulsion he closed his eyes reaching for the maggots and that's the moment when the Buddha Maitreya appeared in front of him in all his radiance in all his power Asanga prostrated and rejoiced and then later he asked the Buddha why uh, he didn't show himself before in all those years of practice and I think it's interesting again you know in however way you want to take it whether you want to you know take it in a symbolic way Maitreya said that he had always been present throughout of those years throughout those years but only when all the hindrances and fetters had melted away through Sangha's practice and his devotion, which really reached the peak when he was willing to do anything just for that, just to save the dogs and the maggots, that he could recognize Maitreya or Metia in his undisguised form. Love and compassion are our innate nature. The Buddha Maitreya is always present. We couldn't possibly know about them or make them up if they were not already part of us. But we need to find them or rediscover them in our hearts or within our mind. And that's our practice. This is a small addition to the story. It says that Asanka was so happy he took the Buddha Maitreya on his shoulders or on his head and uh, ran through the village shouting look Maitreya Buddha and all the people in the village they saw this crazy yogi with an old mangy dog on his shoulders <laughs> and only one old woman who, had been, who was quite realized she saw actually it was Maitreya Buddha
Asanga became one of the great teachers of his time. And it said that his connection to Maitreya was so strong or so immediate that some of Asanga's works were dictated by Maitreya. Of his, uh, I think, ten works or texts he composed, five are said to be Maitreya's words. One interesting detail is that scholars, you know, Buddhist scholars, Buddhist history scholars, assume that Asanga's teacher, Asanga's guru, was a certain person named Maitreya Nata. But strangely enough, no indications pointing to the existence of such a person on this earth have ever been found by historians. There is even, you can look up in history books, there's the name Maitreya Nata, but there's absolutely nothing that anyone knows in terms of where he lived, who he was, or anything. So who knows, maybe that's who, where he uh, really got received his uh, teachings from directly. This is Asanga. The most famous of our three masters here is Shantideva. In terms of his life, we actually know very little about him. He is very famous because of his great work, the Bodhicharya Avatara, engaging in the conduct of a Bodhisattva, we would translate it, or entering the practice of enlightenment, perhaps, whatever translation you want to use. It's a thousand-verse poem describing the practice of the bodhisattvas. And bodhisattvas are beings or people who selflessly dedicate their life to the welfare of all of life, deciding to practice all the way to Buddhahood because Buddhas can be of greatest help to all. Whatever this may take, however many lifetimes it may take. Shantideva was living in India probably in between 685 and 763. And just as in many of these archetypal biographies, Shantideva was a prince. And a short time before his enthronement as a king, he had a vision. It was a vision of Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom. It was a powerful vision that moved him to renounce the kingdom and to ordain as a monk. I think for us here we are no princes or princesses and are not monks or nuns. This move of renunciation is still very relevant. Though we have no kingdoms or queendoms to turn away from, we had to turn away from all sorts of comfort to come to this retreat. We could have taken a vacation at the sea, but instead we have come here. But even more we need to let go, we need to turn away from our own inner kingdoms of self that we usually think up day in, day out. We have to let go of our hostels of daydreams or our favorite fantasies and projections and come back to just what is right here over and over again or come back to the metaphrases in this retreat it requires an ongoing act of renunciation and we're doing it so that's wonderful so Shantideva became a monk in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism his life is closely connected to the famous monastery of Nalanda in nowadays Bihar state in northern India, about two hours northeast of Bodhgaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, to two hours if the bus doesn't break down on the way. Nalanda was a huge monastic university where thousands of monks were living. It was so famous that great scholars and yogis from all over India, Central Asia and even China were visiting. We do know for certain that Shantideva was a great scholar. 
his first great work before the Bodhicharya Avatara was the, the Shiksha Samuchaya. And it's made up of quotations from nearly a hundred sutras or discourses of the Buddha. Nalanda must have had huge libraries and he used them extensively. The ninth chapter of his famous Bodhicharya Avatara is the chapter on wisdom. It's very complex and profound and became one of the principal philosophical sources of reference in the Mahayana. And it's written in the style of a debate according to the very sophisticated culture of this monastic university. Maybe if you want to imagine spiritual leaders and gurus would <coughs> come there or, or you know, square up maybe thousands of monks around and they would square up argue in formal debates on, on important topics and then the loser had to convert to the winner's faith or tenet <laughs> with all the hundreds of followers. Now just imagine maybe um, Carol would have to get into this big debate against let's say Billy Graham <laughs> <laughs> and then she would lose. <laughs> we would all have to convert to Billy Graham's faith. <laughs> Make sure it was loose. <laughs> Though we don't know much about Shantideva's life, we can assume from the spiritual depth of his work that he was a person of great humility and deep compassion. An anecdote gives the impression that his monk colleagues looked upon him as a simple or even somewhat stupid monk who didn't have much knowledge and who, who was spending his time mostly eating, sleeping and defecating as the Tibetans put it. <laughs> so people were sort of scheming and one day he was asked, requested to give a presentation of various quotations from the Buddhist text in front of the assembled community of monks, everybody sitting there, a few thousand. So he first refused, but then they promised him to build a big throne for him. So he said, okay. <laughs> they expected to have a good laugh when he would embarrass himself, but not really having anything to say up on the throne. And one story says that they built the throne so high that they were sure he could never make it up there so, because they didn't put stairs to go up. So uh, at some point he appeared on the throne. So they were a little bit surprised. <laughs> Maybe not too much in those days. <laughs> now, uh, when his time came to talk to the amusement of the audience, he asked whether they wanted to hear something already well known or rather something original, new. And they, of course, opted for something original. To the utter surprise of everyone, he recited the first eight chapters of his thousand-verse work, the Bodhicharya Avatara, which nobody had heard up to that time. They didn't know that's what he was doing. And when he got to the ninth chapter on wisdom, it says he began to levitate from his high throne, <laughs> up and up until he disappeared in the sky <laughs> and just his voice could be heard everywhere loud and clearly and another version said that actually they didn't hear him anymore so <laughs> only, only those who could join him up there <laughs> or those who had the special power of, of far distance hearing could actually hear the ninth chapter of his book and one of the greatest, profoundest, and most significant spiritual texts of all times had come into being. So the part about levitation, if you don't want, you don't need to take literally, but the part about the profundity of the teaching, yes, please do so. Even though he was a great scholar, he set completely new standards and values with respect to the practice of compassion. To present the present, the Dalai Lama often quotes the verse 
which he says he regards as his highest inspiration. The verse that expresses the central concern of the Bodhisattva that goes For as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain until then may I too abide to dispel the suffering of the world. Shantideva praises Bodhicitta this unshakable resolve to realize complete Buddhahood for the welfare of all saying Unfathomable is the depth of goodness of this jewel of the heart-mind of Bodhicitta. This panacea, this Allheilmittel for relieving the pain of the world this is the source of great joy. Many of the verses in Shantideva's work are expressions of joy and expression of appreciation. The Dalai Lama said with respect to this ability to rejoice on which Carol spoke previous night, if we can rejoice in the good qualities and good actions of others, we automatically partake of the powerful energy that's inherent in these good qualities and actions. And Shantideva wrote, Gladly do I rejoice in the virtue that relieves the suffering of all those in unfortunate states and that places those with suffering in happiness. With gladness I rejoice in the ocean of virtue from developing bodhicitta that wishes all beings to be happy. And I rejoice in the deeds that bring benefit to the beings. Shantideva is a very expressive poet who uses the flowery language of 8th century India. He expresses his altruistic motivation of compassion as follows. He says, May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to reach the further shore, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be the doctor and also the nurse. May I be the medicine for the suffering beings in this world until everyone is healed. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those who are poor and destitute. And may I turn into all things they could need and may these be, this be placed close beside them. But Shantideva's great work isn't just aspirations and good intentions. It's really a, a treasure trove of practical advice, of suggestions for contemplations and exercises. So after praising Bodhicitta and warning us against the destructive forces, the kilesa, in our hearts and minds, Shantideva writes about the cultivation of qualities such as vigilance, of wise attention, mindfulness. Then he offers extensive teachings on the cultivation of the paramitas, such as patient acceptance, enthusiastic perseverance, meditative absorption, and liberating insight or wisdom. On discouragement and worry, which are the opposite of genuine patience he said whatever difficulty befalls me I shall not disturb my inner joy if I let myself be dejected or depressed I cannot, I cannot accomplish my aims and my virtues will decline and he continues with one of his most famous verses why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? Or to use more straightforward words, as uh, the Dalai Lama often does, he says, if there's something you can do about the problem, about anything, why worry? Do it. If there's nothing you can do about it, then why worry? guess in short, no point in worrying. 
in order to inspire us for enthusiastic effort and perseverance. He gives a description of our situation in this existence here. He says, now that you have met this boat, our human life, cross over the great river of suffering. It is hard to find this boat again. This is no time for sleep, you fool. And he continues, having cultivated patience, you should should develop enthusiasm because awakening depends on effort or enthusiasm. Just as there is no movement without wind, there is no progress without enthusiasm. The most famous is his eighth chapter. Here Shantideva presents further approaches and methods for the development of great compassion and bodhicitta. He explains the contemplation or reflection on the equality between self and other. He also talks about exchanging oneself with others. He asks, for example, when both myself and others are similar in that we wish to be happy, what is so special about me that I protect myself but not others? And then he answers, whatever joy there is in this world all comes from wishing others to be happy. Whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from craving and attachment to my own pleasures. And as a proof he says, but what need is there to say much more? The childish work just for their own benefit, the Buddhas just work for the benefit of others. Just look at the difference between them. I believe many of these verses speak for themselves. And there are maybe some who inspire you to actually study Shantideva more closely one day. That much about him for now. At about Shantideva's time, Buddhism first spread from India to Tibet. It was Padmasambhava, known as Guru Rinpoche, and others who brought Buddhism to Tibet. And that is the origin of the Nyingmapa and Dzogchen teachings. Then after a relatively short period during which the Dharma flourished in Tibet, a tough area of persecution followed under King Long Dharma. And only in the 11th century about 300 years after Shantideva, the second wave of the Buddhist teachings reached the land of snow and then it definitely became Buddhist. The most important leading personality in this process was the great Indian master Atisha Debankara Srichnana. Atisha is the last famous and relevant Buddhist masters of India we know of. This was the time of the Muslim invasions and with this the fall and the end of Buddhism in India. The monastery University of Nalanda, which I mentioned before, was destroyed in 1197, 810 years ago. Atisha was born in approximately 980 as the second son of Queen Sri Prabhavati and Kalyana Sri, king and a queen of Bengal province around today's Calcutta. Atisha's birth was accompanied by miraculous appearances, miraculous phenomena and by blessings of the enlightened Tara. Even as a child he was very fond of the Dharma in his first public speech, still as a kid and as a prince, he declared, loosely rendered, Since I have attained this precious, precious human body, I have met with Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, never falling into the bondage of worldly things, may I be able to join the community of monks and may I be filled with compassion for all sentient beings. 
It wasn't easy for him to get permission from the king and the queen to renounce the throne and the world. When he finally got permission, he moved into the woods where he practiced under the yogi Avadhuddi. And it says from age 12 to age 18, he practiced Dharma by listening, by reflecting, by meditating. And I'll, I'll give a very condensed account of the things he did in terms of study and practice, just for us to get a perspective. He now is from 12 to 18. He was listening a lot, a lot of teachings, reflecting, meditating on that. He then continued to study under a number of different masters and became accomplished, an accomplished scholar and debater. Then from age 21 to 29, he studied and practiced countless Vajrayana teachings. And then he took full ordination as a bhikkhu, as a monk. And his ordination name was Dipankara Sri Chnana. Now after another 12 years of intensive study and practice, so that's altogether 29 years, he was told through visions and prophecies that in order to reach full enlightenment, I mean, he was very, very, very realized by that time, in order to reach full enlightenment, he needed to get another kind of practice, namely the practice of bodhicitta. So Atisha began to search for the ideal teacher, and he heard of Guru Suvarnadvipa Dharmakirti on Sumatra in Indonesia today who was the holder of these teachings on great compassion. Atisha didn't shrink from undertaking the very long and dangerous journey on sea to Sumatra. It was quite a stretch, if you imagine, the kind of boats they must have had. The journey took 13 months to cross the ocean, a very long time under precarious circumstances, the journey was ac accompanied by dangerous storms, by very scary sea monsters. There were peril perilous ocean currents and alluring sights. He was facing great challenges as he sailed on the great ocean. The events and the feats of the heroes and heroines in these legends of old often also describe the inner journey. When we're on the path, when we practice deeply, as we do here, we also have to face all kinds of challenges and difficulties. The storms of anger, irritation and restlessness, the lure of desire and longings, the undercurrents of complacency and laziness, and the sidetracks of doubt or of clever thoughts all traumatic memories that surface and it takes courage to do what we do and we're all doing it so it's quite amazing once Atisha got to Sumatra he practiced the teachings of Bodhicitta and of Lochong methods of mind-heart transformation for 12 years it's another 12 years I think he was rather thorough in his approach, one could say. Eventually, back in India, he became one of the principal masters of the other huge monastery or monastic university, that of Vikramashila. Now, meanwhile, in Tibet, great, great efforts were underway to recover from the persecution of Buddhism by this king, Langdharma. And sadly, there were very few left who knew the true teachings in the land of snow. Quite a few were practicing the tantras of the Vajrayana, but didn't keep the principal and most important rules of conduct of the Vinaya anymore. Others practiced the rules of conduct, the Vinaya, without knowing about the liberating teachings on meditation. In short, Tibet was in dire need of someone who was extraordinarily able and learned and realized, someone just like Atisha. An expedition was sent to India carrying gold so as to buy texts and to find a qualified master. 
And these expeditions sometimes took years and could cost people's lives. There were the killer ice storms on high Himalayan pass passes and dangerous rivers to cross. Unknown fevers and diseases and bandits and robbers was dangerous and hard and long journeys. And this one hadn't been successful. But they did find out that Atisha would be the ideal person to come to Tibet. But Atisha was very much needed, very much in demand in India, and uh, his surrounding, you know, finally he had practiced for so long they wanted him. And he wasn't there just waiting to go to Tibet, uh, which was known as the land of the barbarians. That's how the Indians saw them. And, uh, you know, it was a tough place, certainly, in those days. Then the king, Lalama Yeshe'u, I'll, I'll call him Yeshe'u, uh, from West Tibet, decided to travel to Turkestan, that's east, northeast, to find gold and then bring the gold to India in the hope to move Atisha and his entourage to come to, the, to Tibet. Hope they would let him go. But while he was in Turkestan, the local ruler there didn't like the idea of Tibet becoming Buddhist again. So he took the king Yeshe Er as a prisoner. Now, the king Yeshe Er's nephews, whose name was Changshu Er, I'm sorry for the names, but <laughs> means light, light, light of enlightenment. He wanted to get his uncle out of the imprisonment because he knew the king would certainly fall ill and die in that kind of condition, you know, prisons in those days, imagine. But he found out that the condition for his release, that the ransom, was the weight of gold equal to the weight of the king's body. So the nephew took a very long time to find that much gold, probably years collecting gold in all those mountain areas. Finally, he had it together, and just before he delivered it, he had an opportunity for a secret conversation, maybe through the walls or something, uh, with his uncle, with the impris imprisoned king, Yeshe'er. Now, the king advised or ordered him, instead of using the gold to buy his freedom and his life, to keep the gold and to travel to India in order to move Atisha and his entourage to come to Tibet so as to re-establish the Dharma there. So with a heavy heart, the nephew did as he was told. And King Lalama Yeshio did die in prison, but with the knowledge that he had achieved for his people what's most precious in life, the re-establishment of the Dharma in his country. To this day, Lalama Yeshir is one of the most venerated and praised figures in Tibetan history. Someone who gave his life for the Dharma, for the Dharma for many people. Meanwhile, in India, Atisha was already way over 50. When he was requested to come to Tibet, he inquired from two very realized and clairvoyant yoginis about the possible value of a journey uh, to Tibet. And they predicted that it would be of greatest value for the people of Tibet, but that he himself would only become 73 years old instead of 92. But Tisha decided to go, since it seemed clear that this would be decisive for the establishment of, or the re-establishment of the Dharma in Tibet. So he went and spent 13 years in central Tibet. It was the same period as that of Marpa and Milarepa. He died there in the year 1053 at age 72. He had founded many monasteries, given countless teachings, and had many, many realized students. Among many texts, he wrote and taught the Bodhipada Pradipa, a text called a lamp on the path to enlightenment on request of Changshu E. And with this he introduced the tradition of Lamrim, 
now a classical Tibetan way of presenting the practice in gradually progressing teachings and practices. The teachings and the practice of the <coughs> Dharma in Tibet got revived, developed and prospered for over 900 years <coughs> up until the Chinese invasion, Chinese occupation about 50 years ago. And to this day the tradition is still alive through the Tibetan refugees in India, Nepal and elsewhere to a small extent again also in Tibet and all the way to us here today we still benefit greatly from all of that. And we owe this to an entire chain or lineage of people with boundless devotion to the practice of Dharma. People like Shantideva, like Lalama Yeshe'e, Atisha, and all their predecessors and successors until today. Atisha's main disciple was Dramdampa. He was followed by a lineage of the so-called Katampa Geshes. And they're famous for their so-called Lochong trainings or methods for thought and heart transformation in terms of compassion. They put the teachings Atisha had brought from Sumatra into the forms that are well known to this day. And these trainings of transforming our habitual way of looking at or thinking about things, about life. They're very radical. It means, for example, that we would have to be willing or even eager to train ourselves in seeing our greatest adversary or enemy or difficult person, to use our language, as our most beloved teacher and guru not everyone's choice or preference. Years ago when I asked my teacher Geshe Rapton for teachings on this mind training, he refused to give it for quite some time. Actually what they do is they say, yes, yes, yeah, okay, yes, I'll see if I find the text. <laughs> and then next time you go, you know, one week later, he, he just hasn't time, so you go, Two weeks later, you go again. He says, "All right, the text. Yeah, I think I'll send somebody to, so you know." Um, and I, we later found out that uh, you know there was a sense that he felt that the suggestions in those uh, uh, trainings they're just much too radical for most people to be practiced, to be even taken seriously. And one thing is, he was very worried and concerned that. Uh, you know, people would think it's so way out, far out, that they would actually not, you know, not respect or honor that kind of teaching. And, uh, you know, in terms of, of too radical, I'm, I'm afraid he was uh, right to some extent, you know, in my own case at least. It's a practice that presupposes a strong spiritual foundation and it presupposes that one is well grounded in trust, in self-respect and self-appreciation already. I, I'm going to read a few of those uh, uh, verses and I want to just state that before. Without a strong basis of self-respect and self-appreciation, it's not uh, so helpful. <coughs> but if it's possible to practice, it's quite powerful. And I'll read you the eight verses, that's one version uh, with no commentary and it's not the greatest translation in English but you get the sense it's just practice suggestions when people out of, oh sorry wrong side being determined to accomplish the highest welfare for all beings who excel the wish-fulfilling gem. They're more amazing than a, a jewel that fulfill, fulfills all wishes. I'll constantly hold them dear. That's what we practice here. When in company of another, I shall view myself as the lowest of all, and in the depth of my heart shall hold all others dearly and as supreme. 
Examining my mental continuum throughout all actions as soon as mental afflictions arise, endangering myself and others, by facing them I shall strictly avert it. When faced by a being of wicked nature who is controlled by violent wrongs and sufferings, I shall hold this one dear so hard to find as though discovering a precious treasure. This is the being of wicked nature. When others out of jealousy treat me badly with abuse and insults and the like, I shall accept their hard words and offer the victory to them. When someone whom I have assisted and in whom I have placed great hope inflicts upon me extremely bad harm, I shall view that one as my supreme spiritual teacher. Because I can learn patience, kindness, compassion. In short, I shall offer benefit and bliss to all beings in this actual life and in the future. And secretly I shall take upon myself all the harm and suffering of all beings who are like my mothers. And by, per by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, free from attachment, I shall be re released from all bondage. A few years ago, the monk Pelton Gyatso escaped from Tibet. After he had been imprisoned under hor horrible conditions for 33 years by the Chinese, had been tortured every day for years and years. He said later on in the West, I think in an in uh, interview with the Dalai Lama, he said that he had been afraid of one thing only in all those 33 years. He was afraid that he might lose his compassion, the compassion for his tortures. But he said he didn't. He never did. Such is the result in this very unusual and rare people who practically practice this kind of thought and heart transformation practice. So let's rejoice in this extraordinary human possibilities. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.